Welcome to another episode of the Canna Book Club presented by Resonate Radio. It's been a little while, folks. We are bringing you Dr. Zamir Punja today, the bud rot pathogens infecting cannabis inflorescences, symptomology, species identification, pathogenicity, and biological control. Oh, it's fun when you edit your own podcast. You can cut out the parts that you don't say correctly. I'm excited to have Dr. Zamir Punja here with us. This is an absolute pleasure for me. Why? Because I believe that uh, Zamir is one of the smartest human beings on the subject in particular about powdery mildew, botrytis, pathogens, and cannabis in general. And it is an absolute pleasure to see him every couple of weeks and just kind of understand what is going on in the latest and greatest of this subject. I know it's been a little while, folks, but don't worry. Uh, This is part one of this episode, so that means that part two is coming out soon. And I'm excited to feed you another episode. Just to give you an idea, this was recorded in July. Okay, Uh, this guy's been a little bit busy over here. I have been working in one of the largest cannabis greenhouses in the world over at Pier Sun Farms. Uh, having an absolute blast and taking all of those learning lessons that I have in the previous places that I've been at and with Resonate Cannabis and, you know, the Guelph thing and, you know, you all have been around uh, for those times with me. So it's really wonderful to see you all listening to the podcast again. Like I said, this is a great subject. If you are a grower and you have no idea about powdery mildew or botrytis or about sort of this sort of subject... This is the podcast to get into for sure, because we're going to be bringing several episodes of it. We're going to talk about genetics in this episode coming as well after this. Anyway, I digress on that. I'm going to hot hand this over to Casey, and we are going to get started here again on another episode of the Canna Book Club. I hope y'all are doing well, and uh, let's get into it. Casey, what is going on? How are you doing, my friend? We have been off for a minute, but it's good to be back. And, you know, the cannabis science has to keep coming and we have to keep, you know, book reporting. (laughs) So uh, it's awesome that we've got Dr. Punja here today. Two doctors in the house with Dr. Anubis. And yeah, we're going to, you know, do our usual, cover the general overview. And now we've got our author here so we can ask some questions along the way. Um, So I'm going to start off with the abstract, and this paper was written last year in 2021 in the Canadian Journal of Plant Pathology. And the abstract, bud rot pathogens cause diseases on cannabis sativa L worldwide through pre- and post-harvest infections of the inflorescence. Seven indoor or outdoor cannabis production sites and three hemp fields were sampled for bud rot and stem canker presence during 2019 to 2020. Among 178 isolates recovered from diseased tissues, sequences of the um, numbers and letters region of (laughs) RDNA, the glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase gene, and the heat shock 60 gene identified the following. Botrytis cinerea in 162 isolates, um, B. pseudocinerea, B. pori, Sclerotinia scleroteorum, diaporth aries, and fusarium graminearum. 
pathogenicity studies conducted on fresh detached cannabis buds inoculated with spore suspensions or mycelia plugs showed that B. cinerea, S. sclerotorum, and F. griminearum were the most virulent, while B. pseudocinerea, B. porii, and D. eras cause significantly, uh, significantly less bud rot. Optimal growth of Botrytis species occurred at 15 to 25 degrees Celsius. In vitro significantly tests, oh, sorry, in vitro antagonism tests showed that Bacillus species Trichoderma asparellum and Glioclatium catenulatum inhibited B. cinerea and S. scleroteorum <laughs> colony growth. And when applied as a spray 48 hours prior to the B. cinerea inoculation, all biocontrol agents significantly reduce disease development on detached inflorescences. Uh, prolific growth and sporulation of T. aspirellum and G. catenulatum were observed on bud tissues. The pathogens B. B. porii and S. sclerotorum, D. eras, and F. graminium are described for the first time as cannabis bud rot pathogens. Inoculum from neighboring fields of diseased garlic, cabbage, blueberry, and hay pasture, respectively, likely initiated infection of inflorescences, and several biological control agents show potential for disease reduction through competitive exclusion. There's a lot of little microbes with crazy names in this one that's going to be a fun one <laughs> i think maybe from here on i'll go with the genus name but you know sometimes we're getting we've got two um botrytis so or three so that'll be fun so whenever we start with the first letter that's the genus second word is the species epithet y'all now we're gonna run through the paper and molly's gonna start off with the introduction as usual Thank you. So basically, why are we reading this paper? Um, because uh, one of the greatest challenges for producers of cannabis and hemp is management of pathogens um, that are affecting the root sleeves and uh, the inflorescences. And uh, pathogens are usually um, infecting the crop at pretty much any time during the development. Uh, it can happen pretty much any time between pre-harvest to post-harvest. Um, and the bud rod pathogens are usually reported to include the botrytis cinerea. I think that's the most common one um, that we come across from people reporting because it's pretty obvious. We'll see later in the pictures, um, as well as fusarium. And um, the genus of botrytis contains up to 38 recognized species. Um, and the cinerea is the most widespread one, which is causing the gray mold on over 1,400 plant species. Um, it's also commonly found in both agricultural and non-agricultural environments. Um, if you ever had <laughs> your berries or vegetables go fuzzy, you probably have seen it. Um, and unfortunately, it also likes to attack cannabis, um, especially it happens uh, quite frequently in the greenhouses. Um, the populations tend to be quite genetically diverse, and there's also little evidence for the fact that um, there's a host specialization. Um, the symptoms on the plants are pretty common for all of them, so it's usually the decay of the affected parts, uh, which could be flowers, fruits, stems, and leaves, um, which then also um, followed by the prolific production of spores. And so all of that uh, becomes 
to the appearance of gray fuzzy growth or gray mold. The infection and disease development are favored by high humidity or free moisture, uh, which helps spore germination and mycelial growth. Uh, also, presence of the wounds uh, can provide an entry point and source of nutrients, um, which is sugars and amino acids for the pathogen development. So all of those are pretty common in the cannabis production. Um, I would be inclined to say that majority of the producers have this issue. Um, it's just not everybody is trained to kind of recognize it ahead of time. Um, also, despite of the previously published reports um, about the casual agent of bud rot worldwide, Cineria, there is no studies that are conducted to confirm whether there can be more than one species of botrytis that are affecting cannabis and hemp plants um, in Canada or whether other pathogens can produce similar symptoms. Um, the period of time which in, when infection occurs and how disease uh, symptoms will progress on those affected inflorescences also hasn't been studied. And so in the absence of any registered fungicides to manage botrytis, butt rot on cannabis, um, the potential of using antagonistic microbes as biological control um, to reduce development also hasn't been investigated. So there are several biological control and uh, reduced risk products that we have um, that are registered uh, with Health Canada to manage it, but um, there's still more to be you know, discovered. So the objectives of the study were to get the samples of cannabis um, across different productions in BC so that they can recover the pathogens from butter tissues, uh, perform species identification using molecular methods, assess the pathogenicity of representative isolates um, originated from those tissues, um, as well as screen specific biological control agents in vitro against mycelial growth of botrytis cinerea, and also evaluate the potential of biocontrol of disease on detached inflorescences as well. So that's the intro. Corey, you can take it away with materials and methods. Beautiful. Appreciate it. I have uh, I have questions, Dr. Prunja, for you because I know that this is mostly doing you know tests uh, in the lab and trying to understand you know the pathogenic level what's happening here. Uh, so I'm just curious to know people who don't have access to millions of square feet or giant fields of hemp and these beautiful testing methods like how can someone confirm how is there a possible way for people out there to send these samples into anywhere and get this tested what you know what are those options available for folks yeah thanks for that Corey um yeah for sure you know as a scientist I'm used to assuming that everybody has access to a lab and everybody has access to all the uh, technologies that we normally use but I understand that there are obviously growers and producers that won't have access to these kinds of facilities. Um, the good news is that botrytis is probably one of the easiest um, pathogens to diagnose. And what I mean by diagnose, I mean to identify and sort of confirm that that's what's causing the problem. And I think as Molly mentioned, you get this gray fuzz that sort of grows on the flower tissues. But the thing is, it, it's not gonna grow as a fuzz unless it's under humidity, high humidity conditions. And so what we, we suggest to, to a lot of growers or producers, if you think you might have bud rot, the easiest thing to do is grab a Ziploc bag, put in a small piece of wet paper towel, put the affected tissue in there and zip it up and leave it for about three days. And over that period of time, what happens is any botrytis that's living inside the bud tissue will start to grow out 
and and you'll get what we call mycelium. Mycelium are the strands that 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 allow the the fungus to spread. But more importantly, it'll then produce spores, and that's what gives it the gray mold. There's actually a gray covering, yeah, that that actually tells you without question that that is botrytis. There's no other disease that will mimic what we see with gray mold. Now, in our study, we were actually surprised that we found other fungi. You know, we found the fusarium and we found sclerotinia and so on. But the percentage overall was low. You know, if you have 100 samples, I would say 95 had botrytis. So that gray mold is probably the easiest way to, to confirm that your, your buds are actually affected by that. Now, if you wanted something more, even more scientific or more accurate, the buds could be sent off to a, to a testing lab or, or a commercial lab that, that would charge you, I don't know, anywhere from $50 to $80 to, to diagnose it. Um, that would be probably important if you were sending samples to another location or if you were planning to sell a bunch of plants or buds and you wanted to be absolutely sure that they didn't have bud rot in them. But frankly speaking, the easiest way is to use that Ziploc bag method, three to four days. If nothing grows out of it or if something else, anything that's not gray, if it's white, if it's green, it's not Botrytis. Botrytis will always show up as a fuzz and a gray fuzz. So that's what I, I would recommend that um, uh, people do to confirm that you have botrytis bud rot. Nice. That's something super simple. I appreciate that for sure. Is there is there really a point to understanding which you know strain or you know of botrytis this is? Is it going to affect someone's uh, you know plan when they do go attack that? How kind of important is that for somebody? Yeah. So again, you know, being being a, a research background, uh, we like to do the analysis to to see. Uh, is it Botrytis cinerea? Because that's the, the species that um, that we talked about earlier. But surprisingly, we found a couple of others. Uh, we found pseudo cinerea. Now, if you if you know the meaning of pseudo, uh, it's, it's people have used pseudo in terms of pseudoscience. It's pseudo means it's not totally real. It's not. It doesn't conform to the real situation. So they call it pseudo cinerea because it's not quite the same as cinerea. You know, the, the spores might be a little bit different or it grows in a slightly different manner. From a grower's perspective, it doesn't matter. Botrytis is botrytis. But from a research perspective, I was interested to know that there was cinerea, uh, pseudocinerea in there because up to now, pseudocinerea has been found on blueberries. It causes a blueberry, it causes a soft rot on blueberry. And so when I found it, I said, what is this species doing? in a cannabis flower, like we're expecting cinerea. Why are we finding pseudo cinerea? It so happens there was a blueberry field just down the way, maybe 200 meters away. And I said to myself, I bet you anything that there's spores coming out from that blueberry field that are flying across and landing on cannabis. And we'll come back to this, this spread from another host, another plant that's nearby that may be infecting your cannabis fields that you weren't aware of. So that's where the pseudocinerea came from. The other species we found was porii. And porii is, is a Latin name for onion, the garlic, and leek. They all, they've all fall into this genus. And again, why is, what is porii doing on a cannabis bud? And sure enough, there was a garlic field not too far away from the cannabis field. And again, the idea is that the spores came off 
from that field and blew down onto onto the cannabis plants, and uh, it infected. So these Botrytis species infected uh, cannabis, although you know it was really low, maybe one percent, two percent. But as a scientist, it was interesting because now I can say that be aware of other plants that are growing near your cannabis uh, grow grow or grow out because they potentially could spread spores and infect your cannabis plants. Yeah, that's something that's super important. I mean, uh, integrated pest management people really impressed me when they're you know starting to look at what's going on around there. You know, one of the first things I did when I went to Portugal was take a look at the farms. You know, I noticed there was quite a bit of agriculture uh, surrounding the area, which was also a previous agriculture spot. So, you know, understanding the history of what was there previously might also be a key factor in that. Maybe it was previously a blueberry plot or onion plot, etc. The Portuguese thing was super interesting because exactly that we had, you know, potato field right next door. And as soon as they went to harvest the potatoes... The pests that we saw just over yonder where the wind was blowing into our section was unbelievable. So, <laughs> yeah, it's really important to note that and see what those surroundings are for sure. It's, it's unbelievable. So it's cool that you actually have that documented. Like, that's top-notch. <laughs> top-notch for sure. So the other thing, too, you know, we're not necessarily talking about hemp today, but in, in the hemp, hemp plantations in the U.S., what they're finding is a whole bunch of diseases coming up on hemp. And, it's, and it, uh, many of these diseases are coming from the previous crop, as you just mentioned. So you go into a field, maybe it was planted to potato, and you put hemp in there, and all of a sudden you've got some potato fungi or diseases spreading onto hemp. Similarly, if you had wheat in there, and this, you would never have thought that. Seriously, I would never have thought that. Not That you, you go in, you purchase 200 acres of land, you don't really necessarily ask what was planted here before, you put your hemp crop in there, and you find out all of a sudden that there were some pathogens in soil or in, in nearby fields, and all of a sudden, hemp is now starting to get hundreds, literally hundreds of diseases that haven't been reported before because obviously we're increasing the acreage of hemp, and now we're running into all these pathogens that are, that are affecting the production. Probably the most interesting one that I just read about was uh, sugar beet. In Colorado, they grow a lot of sugar beets, as you know. And uh, this one virus that is spread by leafhoppers, um, uh, the beet leafhopper, was coming in from sugar beet fields and migrating over into hemp fields and spreading this, this previously undescribed virus on hemp. And it was all because of the insect vector and the fact that you had um, uh, hemp fields, uh, sorry, sugar beet fields close by to hemp fields. I would never, ever have guessed that that could happen. So is there anything else to, you You know, before I pass it on uh, and get the torch moving here, is there anything else kind of specifically in these materials and methods that you wanted to point out that might kind of translate over for uh, the layman might be taking on this paper or somebody, you know, at the large scale? Um, I guess maybe just so that the audience realizes there, there's a lot of work that goes into uh, confirming what might be affecting your plants. Now, Certainly, if you send things over to a commercial lab and they charge you $100 a sample, you feel like you've got your money's worth, hopefully, that if they've given you the right diagnosis. As a researcher, uh, it's important for us to be able to identify what pathogens are, are present in these plants because many of them have never been described. So when Casey went through and talked about 
the you know the glyceraldehyde three phosphate and and blah blah blah. Those are just methods that that we use in research to totally confirm that what we're actually saying is there is truly there. And probably the best example to give you is is COVID. I mean, I, I don't want to bring up COVID in this wonderful discussion, but you know, when COVID first started, they talked about uh, this virus that's out there and it's related to to the SARS virus and so on and so forth. M many of us didn't really pay much attention until they started talking about strains, right? You had the, the A strain and then the B strain, and now we've got, uh, you know, COVID SA, SB4, or SB5. The reason they can they can identify these strains is because they're using these really sophisticated molecular tests to show that the virus is evolving. Now, it's important from your perspective and my perspective because whatever was there before in 2020 and 2021 is now being displaced by new strains. Now they're telling me that the BA5 is, is all over Europe and it's coming our way. I mean, I hate to tell you this, but it, it's coming our way this fall. We need to know that because then we can prepare the right, um, the right um, uh, vaccine and use the right vaccine. So this is a very similar thing. We use these fancy techniques to absolutely make sure that we're dealing with botrytis, cinerea, or some other disease, just like they do with the COVID, so that the public is totally aware of which um, strain is now infecting is uh, infecting us. Oh, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. There's, you know, I've been going down the path of trying to cook some things up as well to uh, take down pathogens as well so this paper is a really nice kind of uh, stepping stone for people to kind of understand where I'm coming from when I want to support that viewpoint so thanks for uh, going through that with me I'm not going to take all your time with me because I get to see you almost every week my friend so I'm going to pass it on for the other members of the Canada Book Club to grill you a little bit more <laughs> and then came the results so I think what I'm gonna, I'm basically just kind of going to go by section but I'd really love to kind of go over each group of figures because there are some really interesting photos, and I'd love for you to chime in, Punja, if you have anything that you want to say about any of these figures. So kind of starting off with observations of botrytis bud rot development on plants. So, you know, it happened. There was bud rot. And um, so the first evidence is always going to be that yellowing and necrosis on the bract leaves. I feel like bract leaves are like kind of a big um, point of this paper. Um, and we're looking at figure one, um, kind of just deeper, deeper look. And then like the bottom H to J, you've got your stem cankers. But yeah, we're getting some moldiness going there. Um, so that's kind of the development is figure one. And then figure two is going to be like really bad advanced cis symptoms. Um, you're probably, I'm assuming you're not going back to a viable plant after this point. <laughs> Once this whole stock is done. So now doing this research, when you, obviously you're, you're kind of, looking to see what what is going to develop here did you do you is it possible to kind of turn that around at, at that stage of infection 
Yeah. So, so again, um, you know, the, the way you've described the symptoms is, is really important because if we go back and again, I don't want to keep harping on, on COVID, but let's just switch to the flu. Uh, if you were talking to a doctor online, which, which many of us like to do now, cause it's so convenient. The first thing they'll ask you is, you know, describe your symptoms and you go, well, okay, I've got a, I've got a runny nose. My, my head hurts, uh, my throat hurts my body aches. And so, you know, they try to narrow it down. Are you dealing with the virus? Are you dealing with COVID? What are you dealing with? Now in plants, of course, they can't um, or they shouldn't be able to talk to us. Um, if they start telling us what's wrong, there's a problem. Um, so we have to figure out, we have to be doctors ourselves. And what I learned from, from this series of photographs is that there is a progression. There is a, a progression of steps that the, 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 the pathogen follows, just like when we get sick, you know, there's, there are certain things that happen first. Sore throat, you know, I always get the runny nose and the sneezes right at the end, not in the beginning. So similarly with, with botrytis, it, it gets in and it displays these symptoms. And the first one, as you mentioned, is that bract leaf, the inflorescence leaf turning. And that's a good way to start looking for botrytis because by the time you get down to uh, E and F, your, your flowers are, are pretty much gone. There's not much you can do. Uh, if you look at A and B, that, that's still a very early an early stage um, where, where we can see the, the leaf is sort of dangling down where the arrow is showing, and it's sort of turning yellow. Why is that important? That tells you that botrytis is starting. What can you do about it? Not a lot, other than go in there with your tools and remove that. Get rid of that, because if you let it stay, and it progresses in, into D, E, F, and G. Uh, not only is it getting worse, but now it's going to produce spores that'll spread over to neighboring plants, right? It's just going to move every time you brush up against the plant or if the, the fans are on and the spores are blowing around. So by the time you get to F, which is pretty much what I would say everybody knows as bud rot, it's probably already spread its spores. I mean, you still want to cut it off, obviously. So by, by following these symptoms, it, it really helped us identify. So now we, we train the, the team that's going out there. We call them the, the Botrytis Bud Rot team. Mm -hmm. Their job is to identify these, these flowers, and they look for these, these slightly yellowing uh, bract leaves that are just starting to, 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 to sag or to wilt. And that's, they'll look at that, and they'll say, that's Botrytis, and they'll take it out. The Botrytis Busters. Yes. <laughs> I find another one is also um, discoloration of the bud. Sometimes it just starts turning from like bright green to pale yellow. And so for me, like eight out of 10 times, if I open that closer, then I actually start seeing the middle going completely white. And then if it goes after that for a while, then that just completely turns fuzzy. And it was like, astounding how quick that happened too um and like it took a couple of examples i think for my eye to get trained to actually see that like from across the room um and just be able to detect that pretty quickly and unfortunately in some cases if it's like happening a couple of weeks before harvest you do try to cut out those branches and those buds but like ultimately the spores are already there and so if they keep watering it and the room stays pretty humid it just like there isn't really much you can do other than trying to cut out more just before you take it to the dry room yeah so so what molly described is really important because you may miss some of the the yellowing and and if you take that bud and open it up you do see that whitening inside it's almost like a 
somebody might have sprinkled some flour on the inside of that bud. And that's a really early stage of the growth of the fungus, the mycelium. Those buds should never, ever go into the dry room uh, because, again, uh, when it's when it's dried down, they'll never nobody will actually see that infection. But when somebody's getting ready to use that bud or, or smoke it and they, they're opening it up and they see that white in there and, or smell it, you can actually smell it. Yep. It smells moldy, obviously, like kind of like a mushroom. Uh, those those buds always should never should never get that far, but it's really hard. I mean, like Molly said, you, you got to train your eye to to look for those things. But you know, when you when you actually find it, it just jumps at you. From then onwards, you can't sleep at night because all you see is bud rot, bud rot. <laughs> I mean, it's it's nuts. Yeah, oh, it's no. it's just sad too that producers that don't take the time to do that quality control as well you know before you put it in those harvest bin take a look and just make sure triple quadruple check you know there's definitely places i've previously been at where they just don't wait for that and that's I the did thing the math is, on it it's only taken about 45 extra seconds per plant to check every single branch on it most of the time because bud rod usually is on the top colas it, it doesn't really stick around on the ones below that are spaced out it's usually in the very tops where the buds are so stacked together and they're all super frosty and if you take out the leaves before harvest too like that area where um the petiole is removed there's going to be a bit of a sap on there so i would think that that also kind of inc increases the humidity in that little microclimate uh, which is also not helping. Um, but it, yeah, it doesn't take long. And I think it's better to spend that extra time on labor than losing a lot of the product later on. Because as it goes through dry room, comes to trim room, when they start taking apart those branches for the smaller buds, that's when they see it. And that's the time when the infection spread too far. And instead of clipping out a little bit you have to like throw out the entire kind of bag that it was in um so it just becomes like a huge production loss that could have been prevented such a shame and there's still one thing that um i haven't quite figured out and as molly mentioned those big top colas that are sitting up at the top of the plant they're always the first ones to get to get bud rot now it may be a size thing because they're up there or it may be here I am coming at me because it's the most visible um, cola. It's probably a combination of both uh, because the lower ones, even though they are in a dense canopy, don't seem to develop bud rot as much. So when we, when we get back to talking about strains, definitely those strains that are producing these large things like hash plant, um, you know, they're, they're large. They're standing up there in some cases two or three feet. Um, they're going to get very, very infected by, by botrytis. Now, one of the um, uh, researchers from Holland that came to visit had a really interesting idea that he, he mentioned, and, and again, we have to prove this, that as these things get taller, they're obviously going to be closer to the roof of the, of the greenhouse. Let's say you're growing in a greenhouse. And at nighttime, those tissues are going to be more uh, influenced by climatic conditions or weather at night. So, for example, it cools off quite a bit more at the top of the greenhouse than it does in the lower part. And that potentially could cause condensation or, or moisture to develop on, on the surface of those tissues that are, that are up against that window at night and maybe have cooling off and then warming up during the day. And possibly that's one of the reasons why they're getting more infected. I, I don't know. I haven't proven whether that's true or not, but it really sounds like a good, a good thought. 
that as you're up there, you know, um, just like large trees at night, probably get more more dew or other things on them than something that's closer to the ground. So I mean, that's just an idea. Not a bad idea. I like this idea. <laughs> Alrighty, I'm gonna move on ahead. Uh, moving on to pathogen recovery from the disease samples. This is kind of looking at Figure Three. Uh, the interesting thing about fungi is, and spores is you can pretty much identify them a species based on the spore. So looking at Figure Three EFG you can see that each of those spores have different textures, different shapes. Um, so that can be helpful in identifying maybe even, Corey, what you were asking earlier on like how somebody, a novice, could identify if they have a microscope, maybe they could do this method. Um, it's not probably not the easiest, but it's kind of all there was before that we had genetic testing. Um, and then genetic testing was the next section basically it you know you the interesting thing is so during and before this study there is genbank and genbank you're able to cross-reference these uh genetic sequences that you're getting off of the cannabis pathogens and comparing them to other agricultural pathogens so that's really interesting. Is there a lot of cannabis pathogens in this database? Or are you like kind of yeah so, <laughs> yeah, so so that's a really interesting um, concept. So again, the idea is that in order to confirm what genetic sequence you might have, uh, you need to you need to compare it. Sometimes we, we use the word blast. We, we blast it against the, the, the bank the gen bank sequences that are out there. And when I say out there, basically you just get on the internet and you type in, uh, you know, gen bank blast and it'll, it'll come, it'll come up and then you type in whatever information you want to search. Uh, and there's a search engine that, that puts you through all of this. And so the sequences then obviously would, would match to whatever was already placed in the, in the database or in the library before. The most interesting thing is, I'm just trying to scratch my head here. I don't believe we've found a single pathogen or a single strain that we can say has never been identified before from another plant. So when we talk about these cannabis diseases and we're saying, oh my God, that's new. This has never been reported. They're actually coming from other plants. So our fusarium, for example, may have come in from tomato because this, you know, there was tomato in this greenhouse before and there's tomatoes next door, okay? The powdery mildew is coming from, let's say, an uh, aster plant, uh, which is a, a flowering plant. The uh, sclerotinia is coming from a cabbage field that's just down the road. The fusarium is coming from a barley field just down the road. So what this is telling me is, is although cannabis has been growing for a long time and it's probably been exposed to a number of diseases, as of yet, there is nothing that we've found that is originally a, uh, from cannabis itself. It came from somewhere else. Even the latest outbreak that we have of hop latent viroid, the name itself, hop latent viroid, tells you that it came from hops. And that's exactly where it came from. It didn't, it didn't originate in cannabis, at least that, that we know of. And again, going back to COVID, we know now that we, we didn't just pick COVID up. It came from another animal. 
whether it's a monkey or or something else. And it just happened that because it was close in, in China, in the markets, that that particular virus spread to humans. So now with increasing cannabis cultivation and hemp, these other things are flowing over, so to speak, and landing on these cannabis plants and causing these so-called new diseases. But really, they're not they're not new. So GenBank has been really helpful in telling us that, hey, Zamir, great, you're finding new things on cannabis, but they've been reported elsewhere on other on other crops, which again makes it fascinating because we're not alone in in this production system, right? We're surrounded like like Corey said, with farms and and fields and neighbors, and they're all contributing to our dilemma. I mean, they're they're all somehow inadvertently spreading spores and viruses on cannabis. And there you have it, folks. Part one of Dr. Zamir Poonja's paper, The Bud Rot Pathogens Infecting Cannabis Inflorescences, Symptomology, Species Identification, Pathogenicity, and Biological Control. I'm excited to bring you the second part. I just had to get this first part out to you. I'm glad that I finally had time to get that done. So onwards and upwards to episode number two of this glorious paper. If you're not following us on Instagram at Team Resonate, get with it, please. Uh, and if we haven't had time to do a review yet, the Spotify, uh, Apple's, wherever you may be listening, if there is some sort of review device, please engage with that device. It's always a pleasure, folks. And... I'm excited for the new year as well. Uh, excited to see where the podcast is going to go. We're going to do a year-end wrap-up. I know there hasn't been a lot coming out this year, but maybe we should, you know, explain that a little bit. So I'm excited to get that to you. And I'm going to just let the outro music run for like a minute here, folks, because I know you all love it. Anyway, busy times. I'm uh, going to get to sleep soon here and get back to the nursery over at Pure Sun Farms. And I'll see y'all next episode uh, here on Resonate Radio, another installment of the Cannibal Club. I sincerely appreciate it, folks, and we'll talk to you all later. <laughs>